You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Good evening and you're very welcome to The Best Possible Taste, second helping show with my good self, Sharon Noonan. As it's the second helping show, the interviews that you hear tonight have all been played before on the show. They're some of my favourites and I hope you enjoy listening to them again also. We're going to have Sid Sheehan, Nourished by Nature, who'll be sharing that fabulous chocolate mousse recipe that he had on the show here in May. Dee Laffin will be talking about the Berlin food scene just in time if you're looking to go away for a mini break over the summer. JP McMahon from Galway will be talking about lots of things, including Food on the Edge, which was launched recently recently and it's going to be taking place in Galway in October and I'll also have that outside report from the Belfast food tour so sit back relax and listen to second helpings of best possible taste bon appetit yummy grubs up delicious mmm Sid you're very welcome to the studio tonight thanks a million Charlie Nourished by Nature. Yes. It's Kerry's first combined cookery school and complementary therapy centre. Sounds like a great combination. How did it all come about? Okay, it all came about, Sharon, uh, last year. It's a new business. So I trained as a chef back in 98, 99, I think. Would have worked my way along in restaurants for years. Um, I actually had a great start for four years um, in Aloes and the Soul. So that was a fantastic opportunity for any kind of commie chef starting out. So you are a trained chef? I am a trained chef, yeah. So I would have worked in the restaurant industry kind of up to two or three years ago. And I was always drawn to healthy eating and nutrition and people's kind of dietary choices. So in 2010, then, I decided to take up a career in nutrition. So I went back to college in Cork for three years in CNM, which is the College of Naturopathic Medicine. So I trained there as a nutritional therapist and last year then both my wife Angela and I decided to that it was time to go self-employed. So we opened the cookery school um, and I've got a nutritional therapy clinic and my wife then Angela, she's a reflexologist and a massage therapist as well. Did you find that being a chef gave you a bit of a head start whenever you went to study nutrition? Yeah, absolutely, because I kind of I think it gave me a practical insight into it as to how to implement stuff. Because it's one thing going to a nutritionist or a dietitian or whatever the case may be, and you know getting the recommendations for a new diet, and you're told to go off to the local health food shop and incorporate A, B, and C into your diet. But then to be actually to be able to do cookery classes and show people practical ways of implementing stuff like that. So if, if somebody is going in buying chickpeas or beans or whatever the case may be something that they've never used before so to, just to, to show people user-friendly ways of um, incorporating new foods like that into their diet are you are you surprised whenever you come across clients at their lack of knowledge in nutrition and how to make nutritious food yeah absolutely a lot of the courses that I do like I do basic ones for people that are literally starting out that would have been used to just eating out of a takeaway or convenience food so that would be just showing basic skills then we kind of do more dietary specific ones ones like gluten-free course and stuff like that but definitely there's huge room there for people to improve their diet and that's I think kind of where I come in and just show people practical tips and easy kind of budget-friendly as well ways of incorporating the new foods in. What are the most popular courses? Most popular courses at the moment uh, the gluten-free workshops are always a good one because there's so many people at the moment that are being diagnosed whether you're celiac or just a gluten intolerance or somebody that knows themselves that gluten may not agree with them so gluten-free workshops are always a good one. Um, We usually hold those on Saturdays because they're a little bit longer. They go on for about three and a half to four hours. Uh, Vegetarian is always a good one. Um, We did one recently, a heart healthy cookery for men, men only. So that was a really good one. And paleo is a really popular one at the moment. It's a very trendy diet to follow. And that's the kind of hunter-gatherer that... Yeah, that would be kind of the the basic... It's the paleolithic diet, so it would be the, the original caveman diet. So obviously they wouldn't have had any convenience foods. You know, they just ate as they went along, they picked. So if you, a lot of people would kind of follow the 80-20 rule when it comes to the paleo diet. Um, it is very restrictive if you want to go 100%. Uh, because you can't have any grains, obviously. So you are very, very limited. I think whenever people look at nutrition that it's very obvious whether physically it can be very obvious that you eat well or you don't eat well like there's signs there your skin your weight and everything but mental health and what you eat 
there's a relationship there as well. There's a huge relationship with it. Um, I'm actually only recently I did a talk with the um, it was the Kerry Autism Conference. So I did a talk there and just linking diet and with behavioural issues in children. So ADHD all the way up to autism. So there's a huge link there. Um, do you know, we've always been thrown around these kind of sayings like, you know, a gut feeling or butterflies in your stomach. All these things, um, do you know, a lot of illness, obviously, it originates in the gut um, or in the stomach. So there's a massive link there. And at any one time, it's proven that there's more uh, nerve signals and nerve impulses going off in our intestines than there are in our brain at any one time. So it really is classed as our second brain. So if there's any one thing that people should cut out of their diet that they would notice a significant improvement in their mental health, what would it be? I would always kind of go towards... um, Processed foods. So you're looking at convenience foods. Um, as a general rule, I say to people, get into the habit of looking at food labelling. Um, if there's a big long list of ingredients there with stuff you've never seen. So as a general rule, again, if you can't pronounce it, then don't put it into your body. You're doing a, a workshop as part of the Listowel Food Fair this year. It's called How Healthy Is Your Relationship With Food? Yes. What does so, that entail? So it's not going to be a cookery workshop. It'll be an informative talk for about an hour. Um, just highlighting and addressing how healthy is our relationship with food. Because I think as a nation in general, where our relationship with food is pretty unhealthy. Now, we are getting better. Um, but, you know, there's, there's so many different things to look at. You know, it's just the choices that we make. Why do we make certain dietary choices? Um, and obviously then the impact that they will have on our overall health. So comfort eating would be one of the issues. Comfort eating is one of them. You know, it was always considered for healthy eating and for weight loss to stay away from fat. And there was never much of an emphasis on sugar. Now, the whole thing has kind of turned around. And obviously, we do need a certain amount of fat. It's the type of fat that we choose to put in. Um, and obviously, again, in moderation. Uh, but sugar is the definitely key at the moment. So I would be encouraging people to stay away from food additives. Um, artificial sweeteners are another big one. So just because it might say no added sugar doesn't necessarily mean it's healthy. And this kind of stuff has always been marketed and geared towards kids. So you've got the no, no added sugar soft drinks and dilute squash and stuff like this. You pick up a yogurt and it's got no added sugar. So automatically you think the seed is planted that it's a, a healthy choice. When you look at that labeling, if it's it's something like less than 10 grams of sugar per 100 yes. grams of pro is that correct? Is that the, the rule of thumb if, if you're trying to make that change that if something has 20 odd grams of sugar in it, but it's only 100 grams in weight, Forget it. Put it back. Yeah, I would. Um, Then there's a lot of hidden sugars going in as well. So it's not just the added sugar into your diet. So um, there would be a lot of stuff there. And like I said, the artificial sweeteners are every bit as harmful, if not worse, than the actual added sugar going in. So I would rather see somebody have a little bit of the real thing. than loading up on the artificial sweeteners, even when it takes something as simple as a can of Coke, even though I don't really encourage people to drink it anyway. But if given the choice, I would encourage somebody to drink a can of real Coke as opposed to a sugar-free one. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that, to be honest. I, I feel there's a, a real aftertaste with any of those diet yeah, drinks. Yeah, absolutely. And the, like, there are chemicals in there. I'm sure people have heard of one of the big ones at the moment is aspartame. And this is a known neurotoxin. So what it does is it fries our, our brain cells and they won't regenerate. So this is what these chemicals, these are completely man-made chemicals and our body recognises them as um, a foreign substance so it doesn't know how to react. You're doing your workshop, How Healthy Is Your Relationship With Food, as part of the Listool Food Fair, which is the 18th to the 21st of June. And people can get details about that workshop on listoolfoodfair.ie. But before you go, you have a lovely healthy dessert for us. Tell me what it's called. Okay, so this is actually a healthy recipe for dessert, even though most people would think that you can't have. So if you are a little bit health conscious or on a weight loss regime, that you can't have dessert. This is a good one. I did it recently for the paleo class. So it's gluten-free, it's dairy-free, it's egg-free, it's sugar-free, so, and surprisingly, it's not flavour-free. So it's an orange chocolate mousse. Um, Again, I'll give you the Facebook details so people can have a look, and we'll have it up on the website as well. But uh, only a handful of ingredients in it. It's dark chocolate, coconut milk, um, some good organic natural honey if you can get your hands on it, a teaspoon of vanilla extract for a little bit of flavour, 
um, it's coconut oil and grated rind of an orange. Um, you can chop and change it. You can substitute the orange for um, maybe for lemon or something like that. Whatever your your own preference is. But it's really simple. Um, do you want me to go through it? Yes, do yeah? please. Yeah. So you just get your tin of coconut milk, um, shake it, keep it at room temperature rather than in the fridge. If you keep it in the fridge, the fat will settle on top. So you want to be able to shake it and mix it up. So at room temperature, shake it before opening. Uh, measure out. I think it's 180 mils of coconut milk. Um, place the coconut milk and the dark chocolate in a saucepan. Just warm it over low heat, just enough to, to melt the chocolate. Um, just remove that from the heat and set it aside for a few minutes then in a food processor or if you have a little stick blender or something like that so you get your coconut oil your honey your vanilla your rind into the food processor pour in the melted chocolate and coconut mixture into it blitz it on high speed for a minute just until it's a nice smooth kind of consistency divide it into little shot glasses because you won't need a huge you won't sit down and eat a, a big glass of this like a, a wine glass full of it it's quite rich isn't it it is really really rich um, and you won't get that horrible full feeling after eating it either so divide it out into your glasses or whatever you want to serve it in and pop it in the fridge for two hours and that's it so that is pretty much guilt-free eating and it is a really really tasty dessert and how many shot glasses will that do i think uh, the quantities um this recipe will make about six shot glasses Okay, that sounds lovely. So, so it is, yes, yeah, you'll have to go to try. I'd be interested in trying that. So be sure to put the details up on your Facebook page and your website, which is yes. nourishedbynature.ie. And if you send them on to me, I'll I can tweet them yeah. and put them up on my own Facebook. And page. Face, our Facebook page is Nourished by Nature Listol. Fantastic, Sid. Thanks for coming in, and we look forward to seeing you at the Listol Food Fair. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. You're listening to Second Helpings of the Best Possible Taste with my good self, Sharon Noonan, on West Limerick 102 FM. Coming up next, it's the Belfast Food Tour. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Caroline, tell me how somebody goes from being a solicitor Monday to Friday to doing a food tour on a Saturday in Belfast. I am an absolute foodie and everywhere I go on holiday I like to do a food tour because I think it's the best way to get to see a city and the best way to get to know a city is to taste it. So I decided, well not saying no one better, but I just decided to start a local food tour in the city centre so it showcases all the best of Northern Ireland produce um, but within a walking tour around the city. What's the feedback being back from people? Is it Northern Irish people that do it? Is it tourists that do it? A mix of people? It's mainly people from Northern Ireland, but we're now getting a mix. And it's the people who are from Northern Ireland and even people from Belfast cities from, you know, from here themselves, they can't believe what they're finding um, on the tour that they didn't realise was in their own backyard. And that's probably one of the best things that I can bring to any tour that I can do. Whenever you approached some of the producers that you stopped with along the way and said you wanted to do a food tour, what was their reaction? I don't think they understood what I was meaning at the very beginning, but after the first few goes, they got into it and some of them like to do big hellos to everyone and then they start to talk a bit more. Uh, the bigger the group, probably the little bit more silent they become, but when they start to open up and people start asking them. But the other thing is, is that when people go back to them again and they say, oh, we were on the tour, that's when the talking never stops. Um, they'll tell you everything about their produce and they just love showcasing it themselves. It just took me to maybe join it up a little bit. There's quite a few stops along the way and it takes about four hours to do it. Yeah, it's meant to be three and a half, but we just go at a leisurely pace and we enjoy the afternoon and the morning. And who wants to rush around on a Saturday? And what do people get to enjoy along the way? We have everything from local meats, um, local fish, we have fresh oysters, we have um, Abernethy butter, brighter gold oils, we have traditional breads and then maybe a bit more modern day breads. We do just everything that we can get that's locally uh, or in the city centre that's just local, all great produce. Now the last stop is very interesting, tell me about that. Kopi is um, an Italian in sort of themed restaurant, which I hate the word, maybe more inspired, um, that is Italian food, but it's all based around local produce. Uh, they are one of these places that don't maybe shout it on their menu, but you can go in here and you'll have um, local goat from the Divis Mountains. You've got Portavogi seafood, um, Cherry Valley duck, and everything that they pass as they make only up the road. It's somewhere that... I just think they've got such great produce that 
they're doing great things with it and that's when you really realise what local food is that it's not Irish stew maybe or the Ulster fry it's exactly what's going down on your plate it's the it's the triumph that is the food that is grown uh, or reared in this country. Well, thanks so much for having me today. I've seen parts of Belfast and tasted produce from Northern Ireland I didn't even know existed. So it has been a real eye-opener for, for me. Joining. And I'd really urge listeners to go on to BelfastFoodTours.com and book in with you the next time they're up in the city. Thanks so much. Thank you. Where are you from in Cork originally? Uh, North Cork, the Galtee Mountains. Okay. And you're home on holiday at the moment? Yes, for three weeks. And what brought you up to Belfast? Oh, just friends and uh, friends and food, actually. Friends and food. You're doing the food tour today in Belfast. What did you think of it? Oh, so far so good. It's been brilliant, actually. It's been, um, as food tour, tours go, we, we've done quite a lot, myself and my wife, as we've toured around a lot of Europe and stuff. And um, it's very informed, and which is what you want on a food tour. And at the same time, you want... You want quality dishes and food and bits and pieces, and this has been that. It's, uh, it's been very good, very nice, very enjoyable, actually. What has been the highlight in terms of what you've tried today? Um, actually, I think the sausages actually in the market earlier on were uh, some of the best I had, actually. And I'm a carnivore, as most men are. Very, very partial bit of sausage. Not in a non-gay way, by the way. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, but uh, it was the sausages. There was a, there was a sausage with, um, with marmalade in it, which was really, really lovely. And there was another one with haggis. I think it was the haggis one I really, really liked. Because I'm a very, very big fan of uh, haggis and black pudding. So uh, that, to me, was, was absolutely gorgeous. You said you've done a number of food tours all over the world. How does this one compare to some other places that you've been? It's certainly up there. Um, I would have liked if it was a little bit smaller, uh, people-wise. Um, I prefer a little bit more intimacy, because you can get to talk to the person that's doing the food tour. Uh, but in saying that, I must admit, the, the lady, Caroline, she's very, very passionate, and that's what you want. If you're on a food tour, you want someone that's passionate about their food, and passionate about where they're bringing you. And she certainly has that. You know, and other than the crowd, it, it was very, very enjoyable. And literally, I would recommend it again, you know. You live in Western Australia now. What food do you really miss whenever you're living out there? What Irish food do you miss? Bacon and cabbage. And I know it sounds, honest to God, bacon, cabbage, turnip and white sauce. Uh, and it's, I, I grew up with it, you know, and literally I hated it as a child. Came to love it as an adult. And uh, when we're out there now, you just can't get good bacon. You really, really can't. Um, I mean, Western Australia, it's, it's a little strange. It, it's it's called WA, and the Aussies refer to it as wait a while, because it takes so long to get bits and pieces over there. So even in Australia, even in WA, they're just, they're a little bit lazy when it comes to food. They're very kind of, if, it, if the plate is full, you're full, you know, that kind of way. They don't realise, they don't get what good food is. Um, we, 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 as I said, myself and my wife were very, very fond of food. And we spent, we got down to Perth quite a lot. And we were in Jamie Oliver's restaurant recently in Perth. And again, it was just, it was all about filling the plate rather than the quality of the plate. Whereas I've been at Jamie Oliver's restaurant in London. And uh, it was way, way different. You know, it's all about satisfying the masses rather than, you know, the quality of the food. You said to me earlier that goat is getting very popular in Australia. Yes, it is. Um, they have a lot of wild goats in Australia. It's actually, um, they shoot them. Um, and you can actually just go out and you can follow around the range and you can shoot goat. It's like uh, shooting kangaroos. They're like, an, I won't call them an infestation, but they're, um, they're causing a lot of difficulties in the land and bits and pieces. So there's a lot of wild goat. So recently a lot of the farmers have started rearing goats. And, and, and selling them off and I'm, I'm a very big fan of goat actually I love, I love goat curry and my wife uh, we love goat cheese and my wife makes an absolutely stunning halloumi uh, just done it in the oven with a little, little, little bit of honey a little bit of herbs and spices absolutely absolutely gorgeous you know so well thanks so much for talking to me today safe trip home James McIntosh, Food Ambassador, Northern Ireland and the UK. Some people would say, you don't need to do a food tour of Belfast. Oh, you do. Growing up in County Armagh, and I grew up in the middle of Orchard County, which fantastically now has PGI status, and our Bramleys are like Milton Mowbray or Parmaham, so we can hit the world with County Armagh. But I look at Northern Ireland in a different way. You know, spuds were the main thing. But I believe after the Troubles, we have a new confidence, and that's food. We're all the same at the table, black, white, Muslim, um, Christian, gay, straight, Protestant, Catholic. And the table doesn't differentiate. But this food produce we have that I call our new confidence, 
it services everybody and gives us this strength in Northern Ireland that we never had before. What has the highlight of the food tour today been? Food tour? Where do you start? Well, you start off in St George's Market with oysters. And then you go round and you get the breads that I grew up with. But you also get breads with world flavours. And what was most appreciated by me was that these world flavours are grown in Northern Ireland now. And then you go around restaurants and you do have a tipple or two. But it's the small microbreweries, it's the it's the short cross gin, it's the Hilden drinks, it's it's the new Northern Ireland and it's phenomenal to see and it's ready to hit the world and Belfast surely now is the culinary capital of the world. You're based in London, I'm based down in Limerick and I often come across people, like I'm sure you do, that are still a bit reluctant to make the journey to Belfast. What do you say to them? I live in London for a few reasons. I spend most of my time in China. I'm home every month. I am from here but I never forgot here because Northern Ireland is my home. The value system we have makes us a unique people. And it's just like down in Limerick in, in the Republic of Ireland. There's a, there's a community that you don't get in England. But I'm on planes everywhere, so it's easier to be in London. But Belfast, you see, if you take Northern Ireland as a brand rather than a place, I do believe we produce the best food in the world because it's it's what the French call a terroir. It's got the right climate conditions. It's got this microclimate. It's got a purity. It's genetically modified free with the best farm traceability schemes in the world. And our food is pure. And to see this new, as I said, confidence coming back in, Belfast is the world's food destination. And it's ready for the world. And the world is just starting to see it. And when you get things like British Airways, um, High Life magazine, saying that we're one of the main food destinations in the world that's up and coming. I actually believe we're up and come, and we're now ready to bring everybody in. You know, we're up there with Tokyo and Sydney, with British Airways. This is Belfast. This is a small city. When they compare us to Tokyo and to Sydney, I mean, they're world cities. But this small place of 300,000 people has captured the world. You mentioned China there, and you've actually spent a lot of time in China yourself. Tell the listeners about your cookbook and how you ended up in China. I wrote a cookbook in 2008, and it was uh, a small book about white sauce and pastry. It was the basis of cooking. And uh, I entered into the World Cookbook Awards, and it won Best Cookbook Series in the World in 2008. That's run by the prestigious Quantro family. And the Gourmand World Cookbook Awards are huge. They're the, often described as the Pulitzer of cookbook publishing. And um, I had a phone call one day saying, congratulations, would you like to present a TV series on China Food TV? I did, 40 Days in China. It was, as we say in Northern Ireland, it's not as well than a hound girl of what you get in Bones and Portadown. You better translate that for my listeners. It's not within a, well, it's very different to what you'd get in the local Chinese. But I loved it. I saw fantastic things. I was cooking top of the Great Wall of China. I was cooking with the Terracotta Warriors in the city of Xi'an. I was cooking uh, in the middle of the Gobi Desert. And I was able to take our food and introduce it to the Chinese. And it went phenomenally huge. And you can now see me on International Air China flights. Did winning that competition open lots of doors for you and really change the shape of your career? Completely. Um, I'm the global ambassador for agri-cookers and I do different things but my a lot of my life is based in China now and it's not too bad it's only an overnight flight there and an overnight flight back and I, I was the first Westerner to get on China Food TV and what this did was open a huge opportunity in 2011 I was fortunate enough to be honoured with the Chinese Media Award for um, best TV series in China and this is the first time a Westerner ever won it. And that opened opportunities for the UK and Ireland to get our produce in there. And it's, it's been a fantastic journey. Yes, my career's exploded as a result of it, but there's nowhere for food like back home in Belfast where I grew up. And what would a typical day entail for you? When I'm in London, I work from home, I get out of my bed, I sit at my desk, I write and I cook and I plan to get ready for the next thing. In China, well, it's not like here. And you don't know what you're doing until you're doing it because of their honour policy, a thing called guanxi. And to basically explain it is if you make me a cup of tea, I would owe you a debt. And it's not like that here. 
because of our hospitality. But the more guanci you have, the more available, you know, the more rights you have. And so China, you don't know what you're doing until you're doing it. Somebody with more guanci could come in and you'll be doing something else. So you have to be ready to just go with it, enjoy it. It's not wrong, it's just different. And I can tell you, it's very different. Now tell me what projects you're working on at the moment. At the moment? Well, I'm working to bring the World Cookbook Awards to Belfast. That's 3,000 of the world's biggest food writers and TV celebrities across the world to Northern Ireland to see our food. I'm working, uh, I fly out on the 24th of March to China to launch Aga Cookers in China. This is key because this is the first time an oven, never mind an Aga, has been available in China. They've used woks for 3,000 years BC. I'm also, I run the kitchens for the Quality Food Awards. We're launching the Quality Cafe Awards the day after I get back from China. And yeah, I do a lot of things. I try my best to make our food famous and then bring it abroad. And I've also got my own food brand in Hong Kong. A food brand in Hong Kong. Tell it's, me about that. It's called Honest Food. Food you've got faith in is the tagline. And what I believe is because of the purity that there is in Ireland, North and South, we, ha- we are genetically modified free. We've got these fantastically beautiful food products and there's a lot more flavour than you would ever get in England. And it, it's pure food, it's honest food. You see, food, this food is what my mother fed me and yours probably fed you too. And they did it through love to give you the best. And when I thought about it, it is honest food because it's food as it should be. And we're very lucky on this island as a whole to have this pure food that nowhere else in the world really has anymore. And it's something to be proud of. And that's why I've got faith in it, as my tagline says. And your mother was a home economics teacher and your father was a farmer. So undoubtedly they instilled a great passion for food in you. Well, as I say, I was taught food from the plough to the plate. And I say plough to plate, lots of people say field to fork. But what goes into the ground shows on the plate, I believe. So if you've got this purity that goes into the ground, you've got a pure plate. And that's full of nutrients and goodness. But it's not just that. Food is a thing that differentiates and gives you, as I said earlier, there's no prejudice at the table. It welcomes all. And with our hospitality, no stranger goes hungry at our tables. Well, on that note, James, it's been lovely to talk to you. Great to see you, you in Belfast. And we'll meet again soon. Thank you. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. You're listening to Second Helpings of the Best Possible Taste with my good self Sharon Noonan on West Limerick 102 FM. Now it's time for the Berlin food scene with Dee Laffin. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. Dee, thanks for joining me this evening. Thanks for having me, Sharon. You're going to tell us all about a recent trip that you made to Berlin. Yeah, um, well, I'm very fortunate that my brother is um, living there and has been for the past few years, but also we both share a love of food and he's a chef, in fact. So uh, when I go over to visit him, it's always nice. He'll kind of have planned to you know, go out and try some new places or um, just go to a new food market or something like that. But this time when I was over there, we really kind of made an effort to do that. Sometimes in the past when I've been over, we've done some touristy things. But this time it was really um, more, we'd actually planned where we were going to go and he'd, he'd thought of some new places he wanted to try out. And I was just really, I just overwhelmed and just, you know, every corner we went to, it was just somewhere new. And I just was really impressed and and. Um, overwhelmed as said by what's kind of going on in the food scene over there and I suppose when people the first thing to kind of note about Berlin is that um, it doesn't really have a city centre as such I don't know if you've ever been there yourself Sharon um, but it, it's kind of like Dublin has a definitive city centre um, or like other kind of cities in Ireland but Berlin is kind of almost has loads of different sections and each one has its own centre so the first thing to note is that when you go to Berlin to make sure you don't stick with the same the 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 same section that you're staying in maybe to you know ask um about other other areas that you can visit and when you do go to those other areas you will find the center of those where there are just a hub of restaurants and cafes and things like that and all each area in Berlin city has its own 
um, style and its own kind of even atmosphere. So some of them are very trendy and more. There is a section which kind of is classified as the city city centre where Brandenburg Gate is. And there'd be a lot more touristy restaurants around there and, you know, they'd be a bit more expensive and kind of like, you know, in any city, there's 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 specific restaurants that are targeted towards tourists. So you can eat any type of cuisine and that sort of thing. But if you go to some other ones, then, you know, there might be one that's a bit more um, kind of like, say, like the hipster kind of, um, you know, almost trend of that's around, you know, so it'll be all kind of the restaurants and cafes will be in buildings that are a bit shabby you know maybe they're kind of just been renovated but they look like they're just pop-up restaurants and you know exposed brick and there's graffiti on the outside of the building and you know all this sort of stuff and very trendy looking people kind of eating there but when you go in you know the food is really incredible but very simple um and then in the in another area you could find that there's a lot of um more bars and cafes um, and, you know, a lot of sandwiches and kind of a specific type of cuisine. So, um, but generally in Berlin, um, there's a real diverse um, culture of people living there, kind of like the way Dublin is now with just a mix, mix and mash of loads of different uh, people. And that's really brought with it a lot of different cuisines that haven't been in maybe Berlin or Germany before. I think the Germans tend to really stick to what they like and it's it kind of in other cities you'd find they're very German you know cities compared to Berlin um, which is so much more diverse so the food reflects that and I found myself my brother lives in an area called excuse my um, for anyone listening who speaks German my uh, pronunciation but it's Neukölln and Neukölln is um, basically it's there's an area in it called, or a place in it that people might be familiar with called Tempelhof. And Tempelhof used to be Hitler's um, airport. And it was closed down, and now it's just this um, massive, if you can imagine all the runways and all the greens around it, you can just go and walk there. It's like a, a central spot, like Phoenix Park or something, um, for or, you know, Air Square or whatever, just for people to go and you know, play frisbee or walk their dogs or go jogging and that sort of thing. So that's in Neukölln. And then all around that area there, there are loads of new cafes and restaurants opening up. One of them I went to, um, it was like a, a vinyl a vinyl record shop. And it was really cool because you walked in and very young people own it and run it. Um, very simple design. And they had just actually sell vinyl records in there they play them in there but then you can also get food in there and it's just really nice but the food is really well done things like kind of um pita breads with um you know vegetables and and salad in it um maybe some hummus um they also do kind of you know obviously they're they have a lot of different kinds of meats and and sam for sandwich meats that than what we would have here with a very kind of specific german flavor to them so you get lots of that kind of thing and cheeses. Um, and then there was another one, actually one I really loved, I'd love if they had here, is um, a place for brunch that you go to, and it was called Engels, like E-N-G-E-L-S. Um, and basically you go in, and it's like an all-you-can-eat brunch, and you pay €10.50. And I, have, I mean, I have photographs of this buffet table, but it's the biggest buffet breakfast I have ever seen in my life it was everything on it from eggs done so many different ways to breads loads of different breads you know butter preserves chutneys then things like pickles and peppers and jalapenos and pickled onions and then you know uh, omelets and quiches and it just went on and on there was meats and you know you just and then they had a hot section of bamaries with like um, meatballs and rashers and sausages and um, obviously they're more like verse like the German sausages um, but it was just incredible I mean and that was all for 10.50 and it was all you can eat and um, was it jam packed very busy and buzzy like, I mean it was busy but you know it wasn't like we walked in there was tables there and it was really again just a lovely place like really chilled out relaxed like young people working there um, and just everyone was so friendly and so nice and so polite and it wasn't now it was busy and it, it is does tend to be one of the busier spots i think actually maybe the reason 
just thinking about that when you asked me that if we had gone there maybe like no more in any city in Ireland if we'd gone there on a Sunday morning it might you know that's a real brunch day isn't it so I think we were actually there on a on a Saturday morning so maybe there were still some people working um, and the other thing about Germany and Berlin as well is that um, Sundays um, are really um, like nobody works on Sundays I'm not saying nobody but hardly anybody works on Sundays because all of the shops are closed um, and they really honour Sundays and they like to spend this with their families. So it is a big day for things like brunch and lunch and dinner and eating out. And you'd find a lot of people out um, dining out, but also even in the parks like Templehof and places like that in Neukölln, they'd be out having barbecues and things like that because it doesn't rain a lot in Berlin. So <clears throat> even if it is a little bit chillier than in the summer, you know, there's still people out taking advantage of the weather. You obviously thought it was great value for money, the food. Oh, amazing value for money. Like, I mean, really, everywhere you go, the portion sizes are amazing. And, you know, everyone's, like, it's very easy to kind of live and eat there, you know, in terms of speaking to people. They, a lot of them speak English. Even if you try to speak German, they're very, they'll speak back to you in English. They're very friendly. But the value is really good. I mean, like, you can pay for dinner, you know, it would be a main course would be maybe 12 euros or something. I mean, you can pay, you know, again, like I was saying, the different areas, you can go to the more touristy areas and no more than if you're in Temple Bar or something like that in Dublin, like you'll pay the 20 something euros for, um, you know, a, a main course. But there, you don't have to at all. I mean, and there are a lot of places where they have set menus and things like that. And I think that really adds to the value as well. Plus, the other thing that's really cheap or cheaper than here is beer and alcohol. I mean, you know, they don't have the same tax that we have on, on wine and things like that. And they have obviously obviously their own um, selection of beers that are brewed in, in Germany and, and Belgium and Luxembourg so close to them that it's just so much cheaper from that perspective as well. And the one thing people might have to get used to over in there is that um, while there is a smoking ban in Germany, they don't all necessarily um, pay attention to it in Berlin. So you might be in a bar that there's a lot of people smoking in, which is something I had to get used to. And I found really strange because I hadn't been in one in such a long time where people were, were smoking around me. I'm sure that was a bit unpleasant now whenever we are used to having the fresh yeah. oh, I, I air in the bars. Yeah, I actually found it suffocating almost. It was so funny. Just I haven't been abroad in a country where there was where there is smoking allowed, you know, that sort of way. So I was, I really found it quite weird. But, um, and then the other thing just to say is that um, I ate in another restaurant, which was really interesting, called um, Sauvage. And Sauvage is the world's first uh, paleo restaurant. For anyone who doesn't know what paleo is, it's a, I suppose, a, a way of eating that people also call it the hunter-gatherer diet or the um, the caveman. It's one of the nicknames it's also been called. But basically it um, is like where you don't eat grains and you eat like organic meat and vegetables and things like that, that that you would have to hunt or gather. So a lot of foraged foods as well. So this restaurant, Sauvage, is actually owned by these two guys, Boris and Rodrigo, who are actually over for the Galway Food Festival and actually went to hear them um, give a talk about like the restaurant and paleo food and just the type of food that it is. It was amazing. And they also gave a demonstration on uh, Sunday at um, on fermentation, which was really interesting as well. But they're lovely guys and I got to speak with them um, while I was there. But they basically opened up the world's first paleo restaurant and I suppose they were you know worried about what people might think. But it has done really well there. And if you didn't know that it was paleo, if you take that aside and you go there, it is just really good, wholesome food. Like I had beef bourguignon. And for starter, one of the things I had was um, like a potted venison, which was absolutely amazing. And they even have a bread that they've made. <clears throat> it's like a paleo bread, which is really excellent as well. Um, but, you know, I mean, it, it's it's testament to them how good the food is. You know, they really take a lot of care and where they source their ingredients from. Um, obviously, it all has to be organic and they have to be, you know, they, they need to know where it comes from and, and all that sort of the provenance of it. Um, even the wine in the restaurant is organic or biodynamic, as they call it. Um, so it's, a, it's another brilliant restaurant to go to. It sounds like you had an amazing trip and you definitely would recommend it. 
highly recommend it. I mean, I think Berlin is really experiencing what we're experiencing over here. I can't speak about the rest of Germany. I'm not, you know, going to, but there is definitely a kind of a, you know, that excitement about food. And there's restaurants and cafes, certainly, especially in my brother's area, which Neukölln, which I spent a lot of time in, just opening up all the time. And the diversity of definitely the people that live there is bringing that diversity into the food in the restaurants and the type of places opening up. So I really recommend anyone, you know, there are cheap flights. My flights were only about, I think, 80-something euros return because I booked them in advance, you know, on their direct flights. It's only two and a half hours. So I highly recommend this. Well, thanks so much for coming on to share your experience with us, Dee. And we look forward to talking to you next month about whatever you get up to in the next few weeks. Oh, absolutely. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it, Sharon. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. You're listening to Second Helpings of the Best Possible Taste. Have a listen now to my chat with J.P. McMahon from Galway. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. JP, you're here today to give a workshop on fermentation. Just explain what that is. Um, fermentation is a really, I suppose, ancient process of um, of preserving vegetables and preserving meat and fish as well, but primarily vegetables. Um, and I suppose it's something that's uh, back in fashion now. It's quite, I suppose, it's quite trendy. You see it in a lot of different menus and that. But it's, uh, I suppose, in its in and of itself, it's a process that's like thousands of years old and. Essentially, it's the application of um, of salt to vegetables, um, with with water, and um, you um, I suppose harbor natural wild yeast for to stop them spoiling, and it's a very simple process. Um, a lot of people are a bit wary of it because the, you never put them in the fridge. Um, it does have a quite sour and um, strong taste, but um, it's a very very interesting process because it's very organic. Once you start it, the flavors change. Um, uh, from the moment you begin it to the whether it's the days or weeks um, uh, or months ahead. So today in the, the workshop we did earlier, we had them tasting cucumber I fermented three days ago and uh, peas that we fermented last July in the pea season. So just to give them, I suppose, uh, a little taste of um, something different, but also it's 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 a way of making. Um, creating very, very unique tastes because I suppose each chef starts out with the same peas um, and then depending on what you do with them. But if you want to preserve your peas for a later date and use them out of season or use them the following season, um, depending on what um, what way you ferment them can give you a very, you can give them a very, very distinct taste. And I suppose what we were looking at as well was with them making fermented butter and cheese and how I suppose with um, the homogenization of, of, of so many different products that all the butter tastes the same and all the cheese tastes the same and um, you really have to look to those artisan makers but just yourself as well that it's it's very very simple process to make um, a little bit of fermented butter a little bit of fermented cheese it only takes like a day um, and you can get your own butter that has a really really unique taste so does it preserve food in the same way that pickling might yeah pickling a lot of people call fermentation pickling without vinegar and so to to ferment something you need um, salt and uh, and water like a brine um, and um, when you pickle something you need vinegar so it's the acid in the vinegar that stops the food from spoiling but when you ferment something you produce lactic acid so essentially both of them are um, methods of preservation that um, that produce acid and it's the acid that stops the food going off you are incredibly busy all around the country doing demos like this. You have three businesses in Galway. You're doing a PhD. I have two children and a wife. Yeah, two uh, children and a wife. Very important yeah, part of your life. Absolutely. And you're doing the Killarney Festival as well. Absolutely. I saw you joining that. And you actually were also in my dreams last night. That's okay. how much you are ever. Nothing on toward, I might oh, add. That's okay. But you have a huge project, which I feel is probably very personal to you. And that's in October. And it's called Food on the Edge. Yes. Um, I, I suppose I've taken part in similar projects around the world, like with Cook It Raw and um, and Terroir in Canada, where a, a bunch of chefs came together and um, talked and uh, discussed, uh, networked. And I suppose over the last few years, um, I thought there's no reason why we couldn't do this in Ireland. And then because I'm up in Galway. Um, so I decided just to start emailing and tweeting um, various famous chefs and um, 
some of them I knew personally from um, from Cook and Raw, like Albert Adria and um, um, and yeah, many of them said no, but many many of them said yes, and so there's about forty or fifty. Uh, internationally recognized chefs um, coming to Galway in October to for a two-day symposium to talk about uh, to talk about food um, both in a personal sense and also in, in a political sense and hopefully we've a plan for three years um, because a lot of them uh, their schedules are so busy a lot of them could say yes 2016 but they couldn't um, they could say yes 2016 but they couldn't say yes to 2015 um, so no, it's a really wonderful li- lineup, particularly on the British side of things. We've Nathan Outlaw and Tom Akins, Daniel Clifford, um, uh, Philip Howard. Then we've two of Mexico's top chefs coming, one of Singapore's top chefs, um, um, a couple of Nordic chefs as well. So it's really um, again, it was kind of like a bit like a field of dreams. I just kept inviting people and um, seeing what had happened. And we have to get money and uh, funding and all those things to have yet to come into place. But it'll all be grand. Um, that's the way I do things. Is it very much a chef-focused event? It's a three days in the middle of the week, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and the symposium on a Monday and Tuesday. Like even though it's chefs, uh, it, it, I suppose it is targeted as at industry professionals, but also like people who love food. So like I mean, it's very very hard to separate industry professionals and, and what you call foodies because a lot of them are, are are sometimes in the industry but not necessarily in in the in the centre of it. Um, so I do think anyone who like um, who enjoys, I suppose, watching cooking programs as well is going to going to get a lot from it um, because these guys are um, are suppose that for me they're at the, the top of their game and there's an awful lot we can we can learn from them um, and I do think I, I hope it'll be um, like a benchmark for for young Irish chefs as well. We have two young Irish chefs um, taking part. One Mark Moriarty who won the. Um, uh, Euro talk. Yeah, but he Euro also talk. came. He also won his heat in San Pellegrino. Yeah. So I know Mark, and I think it's really nice to have someone of Mark's age to be talking as well, because I think it's really important that you have um, figures that um, younger chefs can aspire to, and also older figures. But but I think it's 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 a really good benchmark, and and, and not even though many of the chefs coming over have like one, two, and three Michelin stars. It's it's not it's not it's not about that. It's more about. Um, producing like really good food whether it's street food or a cafe food it's just about making better food and if if we can I suppose as a country can learn how to do that I think we all benefit when you come to Killarney now in June what can we expect oh god I don't know I haven't haven't even thought of that yet Um, I know I'm doing a demonstration but uh, I do not know what I'm what I'm what I'm cooking yet but I mean all of all the demonstrations I do I think um I always want to um, um, inspire people to cook. So, I mean, it, they're always for everyone. I don't. I don't think. I don't believe there's people that can't cook. I just think there's they're, they they haven't either been shown right or they haven't. I suppose. Um, um, I, I suppose worked at it worked at it enough. And it's uh, for me, it's cooking. It's not a very um, complicated pro, uh, process, and it's something that's that we all should be able to do. And I mean, I thought myself to cook and. Um, um, I suppose I worked in restaurants, not, but I never formally went to um, to chef college. But I do think that the that um, getting people to cook better with with um, with good food is is um, is, is probably um, what I what I try and do. So you don't think it's a gift then? I don't think so. No, I think um, I was a slow, a very slow um, starter. So. Um, I think I only only seriously I was cooking since I was 15 on and off but when I went back to college as a mature student and studied English and art history and I thought that I wouldn't um I wouldn't I suppose really cook professionally anymore I kept cooking on the weekends but um I kept getting drawn back into the kitchen and but I, I think it's um it's like commitment I, I don't think it's um I mean I think I have a creative flair for um for cooking but it's also a, a kind of in, an interest as well so it's not I, I do think that um that anyone can um, that anyone can uh, can try their hand at cooking. Well, you said there about being drawn back into the kitchen. You have three kitchens to choose from uh, now in Galway. Tell us about each restaurant and the style of oh, food in keep, each they one. Keep, they keep they keep me busy. Um, the like all the three restaurants have the same produce. So like that's the 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 the, the, the overarching overarching emphasis is that they all have to share a kind of similar philosophy at, at the root. And then Anir is, I suppose, our our flagship restaurant has a Michelin star for the last three years, and um, it, it looks 
into I suppose our own terroir and tries to use things that um, that are only from Ireland so we don't use chocolate we don't use lemons we don't use black pepper so um, in the cooking process and these are things that are used in our other restaurants it's just that in and near we wanted to try and see what it would look like to to create a kind of um, an Irish cuisine based on Irish produce alone and it's a very very interesting uh, project it's a very very small restaurant it's only 30 seater 30 seater restaurant um, it has no tablecloths even though you suppose you have to call it fine dining it has tasting menus and that but I mean essentially it's 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 a it's I'd like to kind of think of people having experience going there and um, and dining um, our other restaurant our other two is Cava is our tapas bar it's probably our busiest restaurant as well um, so Cava is probably like the mother, the mother of the three restaurants, um, and I mean Cava is, I suppose, very, very popular with um, in Galway and 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 Nashville as well with tapas, and um, it's, I mean, I love Spanish food and I love mixing Spanish and Irish um, produce and cuisine, and we use an awful lot of Irish um, produce to produce the Spanish food, and I, I, I suppose I, I looked into this in the um, in the book I wrote recently on for for Cava. Um, and then lastly, we have Eat, which is a gastropub, and we opened Eat um, after a year. I suppose for me, I suppose a certain restlessness that I wanted to explore pub uh, food, and I think pub food is very underrepresented in Ireland. It often gets a kind of short stick, and I thought, like, well, we take the best possible produce, and if we make our own chips and we make um, our own sauces, like, um, can we succeed? Like, it's 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 more difficult because you end up uh, costing you more. But I mean, we're there three years now, and we're still ticking along and um, and, uh, and and enjoying it. And I mean, I mean, I I enjoy the restaurants myself, even when I, when I, when I'm eating in them, and I suppose that's that's a good sign. I mean, that we've two kids and I like bringing them to the restaurants and showing them um, because again it has to be for the um, I mean restaurants kind of have to be for kids as well and I mean we never have any problem with people bringing kids into an ear. And you also have then the boutique cookery school oh, in an ear. I nearly forgot I, on Sundays and, and Sundays and Mondays. We started that because um, like the restaurant was closed for two days and we did cooking classes in Cava and it, I suppose it was a way of um, bringing in um, and like uh, um, additional income that 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 they're near that they're near needs. And if people want to find out more, what's the best website for them to go to? God, I suppose they can. I mean, Eat Galway is is the is the the brand the I suppose the overarching website eatgalway.e. But a near Cava or Eat all have separate websites, and they can they can find them very very easily on um, on Google and just uh, information there. And a near is A N I A R. A it is a near restaurant, and it means from the west. Even though I'm not an Irish speaker myself, I get in trouble sometimes because you get a load of Gaelgors in the restaurant looking for an Irish speaker, and uh, we don't have any. At the, my father speaks Irish, but um, we don't have any at the moment. So we have to send him on the TG car or something like that when they're looking for an Irish speaker. You rebelled against him oh, by the signs of it. Yeah, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Well, I, I mean, he was a physics teacher, a lecturer in college, so I'm uh, I'm still trying to finish a PhD, so I haven't rebelled um, rebelled that much, but. I'll, I'll keep on trying. Well, good luck with your very busy lifestyle, and uh, we must talk again before October to find out about food on the edge again. Absolutely. Thanks very much. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit!